Yep. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Conversations with Calvin. We the Species, uh, chronologically, uh, March 29th. And I'm with Dr. Michael Hoffman from Cornell University. Uh, and we have so much. Uh, right, right away, Michael wrote our changing menu. Uh, this has blown my mind as I plunge through this. Uh, I uh, initially want to thank uh, Alan Hesse from Ecuador, who kind of put us together uh, uh, as a matchmaker. Uh, Alan is very involved climatologically and with kids and uh, actually with food and, 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 and Michael's journey. We're going to talk about all about that. We're going to talk about uh, whipped cream uh, 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 and tea and olives and cocoa and rice and peaches and potatoes uh uh and cows and 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 bugs and pests there's so much to talk about uh and and i i said to michael before he went on air uh, my head is swimming because as i'm reading this I'm, I'm taking voluminous amounts of notes until i had an aha that uh, every sentence is a note so i cannot write down every sentence it, it's it, it's like my goodness, I never realized this. Uh, I, 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 my head is swimming with factoids. Uh, uh, the government spends $4 billion. I'm, I'm just rambling, and we're going to get to Michael in two seconds. Uh, the government spends $4 billion a year on agricultural projects, research, call it whatever you want. Uh, and, and, and Americans spend $43 billion on playing video games. I pull that out. And I, that was like somebody hit me over the head with a mallet. So we have a lot to do uh, to cover. Uh, uh, by the way, my other thing I said to Michael also is that this should be standard reading for everybody over the year, uh, over the age of five, right up until ninety five and beyond. Uh, it, it 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 because it opens up your mind and to make you think and to make you to innovate you. Uh, uh, this is such great stuff scary and maybe you can alleviate some of the scare scariness but it's scary um the ipc the ipcc the other day came out with uh another dire warning the intergovernmental panel on climate change uh also scared the hell out of me uh we're really 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 running out of time you can address that too uh michael uh anyway i'm done with my slightly long I had to do this uh, to set this up, to set you up. Uh, so I I'm done. And I guess the best way to begin is a little bit of your journey to how you got where you are. Take it away, Michael. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Calvin. I'm very happy to be here and help spread the word, so to speak. A little background. Well, look, grew up in yeah, a little far. background. Uh, yeah. You want to start from, you know, the dairy farm where you grew up? Yeah, well, it's a qualified dairy farm. I guess when you have one cow, that's still a dairy farm. <laughs> but that's where I grew up. Milk the cow in the morning, every night. That's applied a uh, milk to the house. My mom made butter. Um, so it was a very, very special upbringing, uh, close to the land. And that's will always remain with me. Um, standard thing went on to, oh, I should mention I had a couple of unique pets along the way at Elmer the Goose, Yogi the Pig, and Carl the Crow. And if anybody wants a special pet, 
a crow is it if that ever happens in your life. They're extremely smart, etc. Um, and sometimes scary. But uh, same, you know, Midwestern kid grew up. That was during the Vietnam War era. I quit college so I could serve in the Marines. Went to Vietnam, came back, uh, got married somewhere in there. Went on for multiple degrees, ended up with a PhD in entomology from the U University of California, Davis, and then came to Cornell in uh, 1990 and um, spent nine years as a full faculty member, but then went into leadership positions and of all sorts for 21 years. And now I'm a faculty I'm a professor emeritus, um, which means I get all the privileges of a full-time faculty member, but I, I don't get paid. That's okay. <laughs> I work full time on helping people understand climate change through food. Uh, somewhere in there, I picked up on climate change. I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, a dear friend of mine gave me a book, uh, Revenge of Gaia uh, by James Lovelock, Lovelock. And that was sort of a tipping point for me. That was, uh, he was ahead of his time, pushed a few buttons, but that brought the light. I saw the light of that climate change light. And Again, all I did to do now is dedicate my time to this very thing, just spreading the word about how climate change is essentially changing everything on the menu. You know, I'm not hearing or I'm not telling you it's going to go away. It's not like doom and gloom, but it's changing and we need to pay attention. Well, there, here we are. All right, here we are. Um, so, um, Talk about uh, our changing menu. Um, just a quick overview of how, how much uh, uh, climate change is really uh, affected. I, I, like, I started off throwing the, your tea, olives, cocoa. I mean, all the stuff is affected. So talk about your journey to writing this uh, along with um, Carrie and, and Danielle um, and um, take it from there. Well, I've given many, many talks about climate change. And then over the years, sort of, they evolved into picking up more and more on food in that conversation with the audience. And you could immediately see a reaction in the audience when you said something about, yeah, coffee's in trouble or chocolate. And I thought, hmm. And then I kept seeing these people doing TED Talks, et cetera, and getting in the press. And they'd all written a book. So there was like a means by which we could better tell the story or get more attention by writing a book. So I reached out to uh, Danielle, who is now on the faculty at Cornell, uh, but she was a professional chef for five years. Well, wow. so it's pretty convenient to have a chef on board when you're writing a book about a dinner menu. And uh, Carrie, uh, was a, a freelance writer for many years and we had worked together. So she brought her expertise to that story and we'll get to this, but specifically the, the interviews of people on the front lines around the world facing climate change. So as a team, we spent somewhere between a, a solid three years of research because there's a lot of references there in the book. They don't get in the way of its readability, but you know the data are there to support everything we say, and it had to be correct given the topic be climate, being climate change. So somewhere between three and four years from when the idea came to me and to reach out to them, we finally published it. 
a little over a couple of years ago. Um, and it's the whole concept of our changing menu is really catching on. Very yeah. pleased. Interestingly, I, I read that uh, surveys show that in, in the subject of climate change, when you bring out food and people's menu changing, they react more to that than anything else, correct? Well, we did. I think you're referring to the national survey we did yes. Uh, yes. a little less than a year ago. And the idea actually was to uh, test whether people did care more about food. Well, let's put it this way. It was a messaging experiment. So about 500 people received a survey that started out with a paragraph on the standard description of the impacts of climate change, melting glaciers, more extreme weather, and then a set of 19 questions. Well, another 500 people got an opening paragraph that said climate change is going to affect your coffee and chocolate and so on. So it focused on food in the same 19 questions. So that the whole idea was do people react more intensely to the in response to these questions when it, it's food or the standard message? And it turned out we didn't see it at, at sort of at that level. But then you start looking at the questions and uh, one of them was, um, you know, do you really care about climate change impacts on food choices? Absolutely. And what's actually quite exciting about the response is it crossed political lines. Everybody eats. Aha. Uh -huh. Everybody eats. Uh -huh. Another question, do you want to learn more about climate change effects on your food? Same thing. Roughly 80%, I'll just say, Democrats and 60% Republicans said, yeah. Will you pay more for food, that, food that's grown using climate-friendly practices? Same thing. Then we embedded one of these standard questions, do you consider climate change a crisis? Well, Democrats about 60% and Republicans 20%. Hmm. But compare that when you're asking a question about food. So, you know, do we have a window of opportunity here to work across that divide using food? Everybody eats. It's all changing. So that story, there's there's an opening there that we we have to take advantage of. That was pretty exciting. That and basically that proved the whole basis of the, you know, we wrote a book assuming people cared, but we now know. And the survey had you know several more questions, but they're all pretty consistent. Yeah. Fascinating. Really fascinating. Um, Michael, a, a quick overview where food comes from. <laughs> if, if you can compact that. Uh, well, there's a pretty simple answer to that. Everywhere. Everywhere. But um, let me just give some examples that most yeah. of our, you know, I learned a lot. You learn a lot writing a book. Okay. Uh, it's a small percentage of our vanilla that we use. One percent is natural. Most of it comes from Madagascar. And every blossom has to be hand pollinated. Wow, hand pollinated. Hand pollinated. Wow. Way back then, it turns out at that time a young slave figured out how to do it, and from then on the industry took off. Um, and just to throw in a little climate change. You know, Madagascar has been hit a number of times with hurricanes, which actually devastate vanilla plants, trees, and uh, the price of vanilla a couple of years went up 350% a couple of years ago. 
Um, so that's one. Uh, let's see. Well, when I go to the store, I love blueberries. They're healthy, refreshing, and so on. But I also look at labels. Where's this from? Where's That's another thing to do in a grocery store. Well, for us, upstate New York, this time of the year, they're coming from somewhere else and oftentimes from Peru. Okay. Well, in fact, we import, the U.S. imports about $5 billion of agricultural products every year from Peru. But a lot of that is dependent on irrigation water from meltwaters off the ice cap. The ice cap's going to be gone completely in 20 years. So it's not only where it comes from, but you kind of remind me to think like what's happening from where it's coming from. Um, chocolate, another favorite, comes from Western Africa. Conditions are changing there. Um, the other part of where it comes from is there's somebody there picking that blueberry. There's somebody there picking the cacao for us. So there's people. Uh, maybe one other example would be, uh, you know, a lot of people appreciate uh, grass-fed beef. In reality, most is imported. And a lot of it's from Australia. Uh, again, there's an Australian farmer down there raising cattle that end up here as grass-fed beef. So there's two points there. In a sense, it comes from everywhere. And don't forget that farmer or rancher that's, you know, living off the land, being a steward of the land and, and trying to making sure we've got food on the menu. Not just for the U.S. to, to add one last point, we produce about 80% of the food we need and only import about 20%. But that 20% consists of a lot of fruit and vegetables. Mm -hmm. I also read, and I, I wasn't aware of that, but 98% uh, of the farming business here is, is independently owned. Family owned. Family owned. Yep, family operated, 98% of our farms. Wow. Uh, yeah, we oftentimes just think of corporate farms, but that's not actually quite correct. I mean, some of those family farms could be corporated, but it's right. still corporate, but it's still a family. Which is amazing. Uh, it, it's amazing. There's a, a another challenge. It's not necessarily our changing menu, but uh, 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 the, the whole... Uh, structure of how we get the transportation of food also uh, is is stressed out. Yeah, I mean, that, somehow that vanilla from Madagascar has got to get here, the cacao or rice or cashews from Vietnam. Um, but we often forget that, um, well, for example, until recently, the Mississippi River was in a severe drought. And that would have been last fall. And that's a time when the Midwest is harvesting grains for export, like somewhere between 70 and 90 million tons mm -hmm. that normally goes out by barge on the Mississippi. Well, the barges were scraping the bottom. It didn't work. So they had to truck it, wow. other means, which raises the price, et cetera. That's a huge amount of food that couldn't it did ultimately, but was, you know, having a challenge to get it out to the rest of the world. Uh, same with the Panama Canal drought there, dropped the water level so big ships can't get through. There's some other issues too. Um, yeah, uh, in the U.S., there's something like 60,000 miles of road near oceans where it's at risk of uh, sea surges, green storms. So it's 
we're we got a lot of challenges. It's okay. We have a lot of challenges. Be aware of this. You know, we have a lot of challenges. Um, yeah, I, I I've been so conscious about this. We when we spoke last week. You know, on April twenty second, nineteen seventy, was my slap in the face, uh, the first Earth Day, uh, mm-hmm. and, and I woke up, and and I've never been the same. You know, I I don't eat four legged animals, uh, which is good. I'm I'm not completely plant based, but uh, it, it's the awareness, and that's what we're trying to do. You're trying to do with. Our change the menu to make people aware, to make people think. And maybe if there's enough voices, uh, and you wrote that, if there's enough voices out there that'll tip that that scale and, and get some more uh, red people involved and, and, and get more blue people involved, uh, uh, this is just so powerful. Uh, I can't show it enough. Um, so in, in reading this, there are things happening to our plants, which we don't, I mean, the soil, uh, uh, the, the, the soil, the temperatures, uh, the, the nutritional quality of, of things coming out, all that is changing. Correct? And it's fascinating. Um, so let's just take a plant. I mean, most of us would kill plants, house plants, and you put them next to the heat register or something, or you forget to water, or you go on vacation. They need a crop plant, and all plants need air, specifically carbon dioxide, water, the right temperature, soil, and sunlight. Um, the only one that's not changing on that list is sunlight. Everything else is changing for a plant. So let's just go down the list. If we think about the air, so we put a lot more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. In fact, it's up about 50% higher than it should be. So you will hear the argument that that's good for agriculture because in fact, it has sort of a fertilization effect on plants. I mean, they already need it. So you give it more, they're gonna in fact grow faster, yields are higher, um, but the consensus is uh, that's right, but extreme weather is gonna offset any gain from increasing CO2 on yields and growth and so on. But um, CO2 also will make uh, some weeds harder to control with herbicides. These studies have been done. Um, Insects like to eat more when plants are growing under higher carbon dioxide levels. They're not quite 100% sure why, but they actually do more damage. Hmm. So you gotta feel the soybeans or whatever, you know, it's gonna experience more insect damage. Uh, the one theory that most people think of is just simply that plants are growing faster. So it's the, the nutrients are diluted, so the insect has to eat more. Pretty simple. But then the big one is uh, studies have shown that uh, B vitamins in rice will decline by mid-century with increasing CO2. Now that's, you know, there's a few billion people around the world that depend on rice. Uh, some of our other staple crops like, uh, like wheat uh, essential minerals will decline, proteins decline. Now, that's one side of the story, but we also have plant breeders who hopefully can keep up with that decline and breeding better, more resilient, and more nutritious crops. But it's a big deal because that's worldwide. 
Um, so that's how the air is changing. Another one would be the temperature. Well, we all know it's getting warmer. Now, whatever, 1.1 C degree C, we, the atmosphere warmed up. But it's not that simple. Here again, I'll use the example of increasing nighttime temperatures reduce yields in rice. It's a, the physiology of the plant such that, that it actually, the warmer nights mean lower yields in rice. But then let's look at almost all fruit trees and all nut trees require a winter dormancy period. They have to go dormant or they don't bear fruit. So in 2017, Georgia, the peach state in the US, uh, production was off 85% because the previous winter was too warm. Whoa. The trees didn't go into that dormant state. Wow. Pistachio growers, same thing. The trees did not go in that dormant state because the previous winter was warm. So that season yield were way off. They lost like in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So that's now in the nights, excuse me, the uh, winters are gonna continue to warm. In fact, in the US, winters are warming about twice as fast as summers. Where rain falls or precipitation falls, how it falls, when it falls, and what form it falls is all changing too. Uh, we're seeing that um, sort of an extreme in these uh, atmospheric rivers that are hitting California. Yeah. yeah, those are natural. They always happen, and that's how California gets its its precipitation generally this time of the year. But because the air is warmer, the atmosphere is warmer, it holds more moisture. And because the ocean is warmer, they're picking the storms pick up more moisture and then they hit the coast and it gets dumped. Um, so that's one example of changes in precipitation. And one of the really strange ones is hail will get larger. Um, because you've got that little ice crystal that starts the form of the hail. There's more turbulence, more energy in the atmosphere. It just throws that little ice crystal up multiple times, and each time it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and then finally it falls. So some areas of the world are it's going to increase. So um, it's like we say over and over, every, everything is changing. And, and soil, you know, that's had a great conversation with someone yesterday, and it's nothing new, but we both agreed, you know, soil is potentially the answer to climate change. It has a carbon deficit because it's lost a lot of carbon. So can we refill, you know, address that deficit and, and get soil to capture, capture carbon from the atmosphere being an enormous help. Um, the other thing about soil, and you take a handful of healthy soil and there's like 5 billion bacteria in that handful. It's a living organism. You know, next time you step on it, maybe show a little respect. I mean, it's really, <laughs> it's the skin of the earth and we got we to treat it uh, appropriately. And a lot of times we don't. So yeah, um, endless stories. Endless. So well, we have soil on one hand, and then we have the oceans. And and uh, I, I I've read I know it's becoming way more acidic, uh, bad for coral, bad for a lot of things. Uh, the phytoplankton. Uh, we've got a. I don't understand, but what the significance is. But there's a five thousand mile long bunch of phytoplankton kelp heading towards Florida. So the ocean's a mess. We talked about it last week. Uh, uh, the amount of plastics in the ocean uh, is beyond comprehension. 
and and we're eating that. You know, we're eating microplastics. So uh, talk a little bit about oceans and, and the food chain and the menu. Well, you bring up food chain. So like on land, it all starts with plants. We eat plants, the animals we eat eat plants. So it all starts there. And in the ocean, they're, it's just, they're called phytoplankton. Little tiny plants that are floating in the ocean in the, they don't get too, in the upper layers of the ocean. And, uh, and by the way, they produce like plants on land, but in those phytoplankton in the oceans produce half, half the oxygen we need to live on. Um, and uh, what's happening there is they get nutrients from up, upwelling water from the deep. And that's how they get their supply of what they need to eat or consume. Uh, but because of warming, the oceans are becoming stratified. So you're getting more of a layer effect mm -hmm. and the nutrients aren't coming up. So there's one report in the Indian Ocean where, you know, phytoplankton declined about 20%. Uh, and I'm sure there, there's something more recently I just read, there's something else about zooplankton also having problems the same way. But basically what we're what's happening is the basis of the food chain. So the phytoplankton are eaten by a little bit of, you know, bigger creatures, a little fish comes along and a bigger fish, et cetera, and ultimately the, the fish that we consume. But what's happening is that basis of the food chain is being compromised. So that's you know, one example. The um, Acidification because the oceans are absorbing a lot of the CO, the carbon dioxide we put in the atmosphere, becoming acidic, and that affects uh, the creatures that typically have shells. The shell doesn't form or forms poorly. Um, you think of clams and scallops, etc., um, are being compromised. Uh, several years ago. I think I will get this right, but I believe it was the oyster industry in the Northwest coast, along the coast, would, where they grew the, the young oysters and then planted them in the ocean, so to speak. Well, everything died. And the water in the tanks was direct from the ocean. And that was bingo. So they could control the acidity in those tanks and then things were okay. But it was a real good example of what can happen. Um, temperature changes, uh, I think most people have heard about sort of the lobster populations moving north along the, the Northeast coast. Mm -hmm. It kind of makes it kind of tough on someone who is a lobsterman. And all of a sudden, you know, the lobsters are 50, 70 miles away. Um, so what actually happened is sort of at the interface where this higher, uh, where the cool water, warm water are meeting, the, meeting but further north, the lobster population just exploded. So they had plenty of lobster. They were just in the wrong place for those who, who couldn't you know, take their boats up 50 miles every day. So some of those uh, fishers, as we call them, uh, switched to other seafood just to stay in business. And the trouble with the oceans, they're just vast. It's not like we can just say, okay, let's do this or that, and we'll change everything. But it really, they're vast and add to this uh, overfishing and so on. A lot of challenges in the ocean. But the big one is we have to address climate change or our emissions. That's what's changing the oceans.
Uh, a quick overview um, about our changing menu, uh, starting with a, a quick overview, starting with, you know, before you, you have dinner, you have a glass of wine or a drink, sure. with a drink, and, and then you have a salad that's changing, then your main course, changing, dessert, changing. Uh, um, uh, so a quick overview of, of our changing menu. In other yeah. words, uh, I would love you to uh, symbolically slap some faces out there, uh, mindful of one of my favorite movies, Moonstruck, when Cher slaps Nicholas Cage and says, snap out of it. So you need to get people to snap out of it and, and start processing that we've got a changing menu. Well, so here's a whack in the head of, about scotch. Um, a lot of people like scotch, which comes from Scotland. And, you know, they've got tens of thousands of barrels of scotch aging, essentially out of doors now. There are those kind of out of doors conditions. And they currently lose about 29 million gallons of scotch a year because of evaporation through the oil. Well, that's always been happening. Always. Well, yeah, in way back when, when they didn't really understand how that was happening, they called it the angel's share. You know, this is such a good product, it's okay if the angels want a little bit of it. But 29 million gallons now, well, guess what? It's warming. That's going to increase. So that's going to increase the... More scotch right. will be evaporated out and lost every year. Wow. Um, Wine grapes are sensitive to high temperatures, so they be they may have higher sugar content, uh, acidity changes, aroma changes in the grape itself, which obviously affects the wine. So looking forward just to wine, um, they'll be different in the future. We may still be enjoying wine, but they won't be the same as today. And uh, also with wine, what's happening? Well, vineyards in part are moving north to stay in the cooler climes, especially in Europe. I mean, the UK is now, you know, bragging about they will be the the new wine center of of Europe someday. Um, a number of things uh, in in well, and also bottom line, those industries uh, distill spirits, wine. Um, and beer are water intensive. You know, now we're getting too much water or not enough water. It affects them in many ways. Uh, salads. Um, because the winters are warming, salad production may actually expand. There'll be more places, regions where you'll be able to grow lettuce and other greens in the future. Tomatoes. Presumably, we're going to get sweeter based on the science. Onions a little more pungent. If you like that, it might be a good thing. Um, what else? Olives, olive oil, that most of which comes from Spain, under stress there because of higher temperatures and drought. Oh, and avocados, uh, which we love. I've forgotten how many tons of guacamole we consume on Super Bowl day, but it's a lot. Um, 
they're going to be struggling in California because of higher temperatures coming years. So then let's move on to the main course. So let's think of uh, poultry, fish, and uh, meat. So you hear a lot about consumption of red meat in particular because it comes from a rumen animal that emits burps, methane, and uses a lot of land. Um, but um, here's a surprise. One, a lot of people don't realize that those animals are actually on grassland for a good part most of their life. You know, we all quickly envision feedlots. Mm -hmm. Well, that's where they end up to be fattened up to meet consumer demand. But our approach to consumption of red meat, and I can't be a hypocrite because I will occasionally have some, is to treat it as a delicacy, not a staple. Most people react to that, well, okay. Um, so we already talked about seafood, but um, better get used to enjoying, if you do, um, squid and octopus, because as the oceans warm, they may become, well, they will become more common. It's already happening. And since some of our other favorite fish are in decline, they may be more popular on the menu, more common. And fowl or chickens and turkey in the U.S. mostly are grown in indoor facilities. So, you know, they can somewhat control the, 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 both the weather, the temperatures and so on. So they'll be okay. Although a hurricane or two hit in the southeast, southeast hit some of these huge poultry facilities years ago, which were pretty devastating to populations of birds. Um, sides, rice, I mentioned decline in nutrient, nutritional quality, wheat, the same, uh, potatoes. It's my favorite food with mashed and with lots of butter. But uh, let's see, one of the interesting, and by the way, they also yields decline for potatoes when nights warm up a little. Right, they, need, they need a cooler nighttime. Yep. Getting, so that's going to be affected too. Right. A couple of years ago, the, the chips in the UK, you know, what we would call a French fry, were wanting shorter because that year was a drought and high temperature, so they didn't wow. have a good crop. And finally... I don't want to talk about it, but you mentioned that earlier. I think coffee, coffee and dessert, you know, the area which will be acceptable for production of coffee will decline substantially by mid-century. Um, chocolate on the west coast of Africa, there's under stress. I think I mentioned that earlier. But here again, I'm going to insert the fact that there's a group in Costa Rica and the UK of all places looking at better coffee varieties. You know, there are a lot of scientists out there, a lot of specialists working hard to sort of keep up to the changes to keep some of those special things on the menu. That's what I, my, my next question as we kind of wind down uh, is what can and what is um, science doing uh, farmers doing, uh, creating more resilient crops, et cetera. So they're, they're now motivated science and farming to, is, that isn't, that isn't the whole answer though, to the problems uh, it'll help. 
Well, but I think it's it's a message we convey in the book that there is a lot going on. And so when you talk about farmers and ranchers, I refer to them as stewards of the land. I mean, they're caring for the land. You can be a good steward. You could be not so good steward, but that's what they do. Um, there's a lot of emphasis to on um, soil health. You know, again, the soil is just a remarkable, almost like an organism. And when it's healthy, so are the plants. A soil with lots of uh, organic matter will absorb water. So when you get a rain and the soil has organic matter, a lot of it is absorbed. And then when you have a dry spell, that organic matter helps hold that water. So it's really important. Um, but there's a lot of emphasis on soil health. Uh, diversification is another one. So where you can grow multiple crops, a good idea in case two or three get wiped out by extreme weather, you still have an income. Um, efforts to adapt are important. Uh, we've got new pest coming in. You know, how can you do that in the most managed those in the best way possible, taking advantage of say of natural enemies. Uh, so farmers are um, doing a lot. And I had a farmer after I gave a lecture on this topic, he came up and he said, Mike, it's a lot of this is common sense. You know, this is the things we know we have to do. So they're working on the topic. The food industry, um, same thing. Well, first of all, looking at supply chains. Uh, so if they need a spice special or a bunch of spices from India, can they actually work with those farmers to make sure they have the tools they need to succeed so that that company has a raw product? Um, some of the major chocolate companies have invested substantially in cacao growers around the world. That it just It's a good business decision, let alone it's good for those farmers. Um, I recently heard a speaker from one of the major wine companies talking about uh, lighter weight bottles. Yeah. You think, well, I think this is right, but I heard recently that when you buy a bottle of wine, 30% is wine and the rest is glass in weight. And, I, you know, that kind of makes sense when you, <laughs> if the bottle's empty, it seems like it weighs about as much when right. it's full. Right. Um, but, you know, there are things like that. They're also looking at energy conservation in their facilities, uh, working again with the, the producers that they depend on. We have a long ways to go, but you know, there's also associations that have come together that are striving as an industry to help address these issues. And you know, in part, it's hey, staying ahead of the competition, right, and um, surviving. And then finally, scientists. Um, to me, this story about food and the risk it face is a great opportunity to talk about the importance of science to everything from helping farmers manage these pests to more resilient varieties, um, how to manage too much water, not enough water, et cetera. And then modeling, you know, what's gonna happen six months from now or, you know, better idea when the next storm is coming so you can do what you need to do on your farm to protect the crop. Um, and also, I know people are anxious or get nervous about genetically engineered crops, but, a lot of global reports indicate that as when it comes to consumption, 
they're just as safe as regular uh, developed crops. Um, implementation, there are some issues, there have been issues that we know about, but when it comes to consumption, they're okay. And the new technology that's called uh, gene editing is, and I use sort of the example of a, think of a piano keyboard with 32,000 keys and you take one key off. Well, you look at the genome, the collection of genes in a corn plant, there happens to be 32,000 of them, 32,000, and you take one away. Well, it's very precise. Um, still have to like all kinds of things, monitor it, but uh, so, you know, taken together, we've got help out there coming from farmers, the industry and science, but we also face an extraordinary challenge. So we gotta keep at it. Okay. So uh, your part, we discussed this, you're part of uh, like a great awakening uh, and, and that's what this is all about. And, and again, uh, people really need to, to read this to awaken, to become much more proactive. You need more voices to jump into all this. It's like a, a balance when I guess we get more than 50% of people really realizing that this is, uh, our menu is changing. We're talking about food. So you are part of the Great uh, Awakening. Um, uh, as you, your dream is to become the place to go for food, and this will help guide people and make people think. So you got signs. So it's all not the last, my last little uh, question. So to, it's all not doom and gloom. We no. have, no, we, we've got work. We've got work to do and and, and sign. So I saw somewhere. Uh, I, I get all these things sent to me that the uh, it, it, there's a future trillion dollar business of extracting. And this is off topic, but uh, extracting carbon dioxide from the air to, to cool things down, and when we get going on that, there'll be a trillion dollar business. Is that something, is that too science fiction or is that something we might be able to do? Well, I think even in the IPCC report that just came out, they basically say at some point, we're going to need that technology. To do that. Yeah. And I don't know what the trillion dollars, et cetera, but current technology, as I understand it, um, it's still very expensive and bear in mind, you can't use energy, you know, like fossil fuels to run these systems. It has to be solar or wind or something. Right. right. Um, but maybe I'll mention, um, you know, you look at this great challenge and yes, uh, the idea is to use food, to raise our voices, to use the common ground of food across consumer groups, farmers, chefs, you name it. And we all set, tell the same story. I think it could be transformative. Um, and that's the point. But also, just to remind us all, look at what we as a species have accomplished on this planet. Think of the art. Yeah. Medicine. You know, some diseases have been cured. They don't exist anymore. Uh, right. Engineering, technology, et cetera. And yeah, uh, we grow at least in parts of the world, all the food we need. So what's missing? The will. 
the will. We have to decide this is what we want to do. Okay. Well, Michael, um, this has been great. And this is great. Uh, and I really mean this uh, sincerely. This is just wonderful reading. It, it is. It just opens. It just makes you think. And, and it also makes you think, uh, as I'm reading this, I, I gaze out into my kitchen and I see my little grandson sitting in one of those little things there and, and realizing this is for him. And my granddaughter also out there, this is for them. Uh, it is for us. We love to eat, but this is such a, um, it's like a Bible, a survival Bible. So um, I can't thank you enough for your time, your generosity, your your graciousness uh, for being here. Cornell, uh, it, as I was reading, is an amazing agricultural and life science school. Amazing. It's been around for so long, just an amazing place. Um, I was up there once. Um, long story, but uh, but anyway, thank you. Uh, and we said this before. Come back. The panels. Uh, however, I can help. I'm on your team, and, and we're contemporaries. We discussed that too last week. Uh, you took a little different direction than me, but we're contemporaries. Please come back. And again, thank you, and thank you for this. Thank you for the opportunity to help spread the word. Yeah, really appreciate it. That's what it's about, Michael. So don't leave. I'm, I'm just going to stop the recording. Don't leave. We'll do a little wrap. Uh, and again, thank you so much.